Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we're going to be taking a look at the fifth issues of both Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red, tie-ins to the Axe Judgment Day event, as well as the relaunch of Shang-Chi as Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, which is a continuation of our previous coverage of the last few iterations of the title. But kicking things off are those doubleheader X-Books, which really represent some of the incredible power of the X-Line and the diversity of what it's looking to accomplish. We hope you guys enjoy just as much as we enjoyed making these. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you'll like what you see, and you'll want to check us out over on xsforpodcast.com, as well as X's for Podcast on Twitter. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hi everyone, I'm Jake, your resident Marvel mutant theologian. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O H Mega Sentinel. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel W E I L and at Asleep at the Wheel dot com. And I'm Nico. You guys can find me all over this great network as Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. Also on Twitter and Instagram. And we hope you survive this experience. Just like my faith in Exodus, this was a good one. Your faith in Exodus boosts Exodus. It is finally that time, the moment you have all been waiting for. Yeah. Burning bush? No, sir, that's a burning bird. We are talking about Immortal X-Men number five, written by Kieran Gillen, with art by Michelle Bandini, color art by David Curiel, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen, and a gorgeous cover by Giuseppe Kimincoli and Jesus Bertov. This is the one so many of us have been waiting for. Judgment Day is upon us. We are still moving forward with all of the single issue arcs on these Immortal X-Men Council characters, and it's finally Exodus time. We saw the previews for this pretty early on, and everybody got real excited for exactly what I just mentioned. The Phoenix right at the top of the issue. Everybody, sound off. I mean, I think the most important thing, especially since you just mentioned it, you know, the burning bush and the fact that, you know, Exodus, who would, you know, be most closely associated and and most to, you know, seek out and find meaning in a burning bush, loves a redheaded mutant who grew up in a futuristic dystopia and there's no way in hell that she shaves her punene. <laughs> Gasp. And that's it. Come back next week for more mutants. This has been X's for Podcast. You're very welcome, We're done. everyone. And, you know, what more is there to say but sexitous? And here's the thing. I, I dreaded this issue with all my heart and soul because <gasps> <gasps> oh, I dreaded it. I dreaded it because as much as I trust Kieran Gillen to weave a beautiful story and Michelle Bandini is a brilliant artist mm-hmm. and, you know, I have a Giuseppe Comuncoli hanging on my wall. I The guy is like, I, you know, one of my favorite artists ever. I, I was just so worried that this was going to be more of that, as we're going to mention it, Black Knight Exodus number one, Exodus is crazy racist kind of nightmare stuff that we, you know, I understand that it's of the time, but even as far as recently, Exodus has definitely 
definitely had, uh, you know, not in the House of X powers of 10 era so much, but, or I guess I should just start calling it the Krakoan era. Not so much in the Krakoan era so much, but, you know, not too far back. Exodus was still pretty like, there are purebloods, and that's troubling. So that this was able to be done so finely with such delicateness, I'm relieved. See, and I was excited for this for all the same reasons that you were pressed because, or, or anxious about it, because the idea that I could get a version of Black Knight Exodus that was written in a way that was more exciting than Ben Robb writing, which is to say like more exciting than reading the ingredients list on a bottle of shampoo. It is of note that he started as an editor. Yeah. Yes. Ben Robb brings his history and his expertise to comics and the same level of excitement and enthusiasm to each issue he wrote. And this actually delivered on it. When I opened it up, when I opened up Immortal 5 and I was like, yes, we're in, but like I had to run out to the garage and dig it out of the long box so I could have beside me because like I went and found that issue to have like the one Exodus backstory issue knowing it was Ben Robb. Had a whole conversation at my LCS about not very often that someone comes in here personally like requesting by name a Ben Robb issue. Ben Robb is probably best known for his time on Excalibur at Marvel. And he just sort of took over when he who shall not be named who moved them to Muir Island moved on. And so it was sort of one of those, oh, we don't have anybody. Um, I'm the editor. I'll do it kind of situations from what I understand. And Ben Robb just sort of stepped into writing Excalibur. And I was recently talking about with both TK and Nathan, you know, the odds of them printing certain omnibus editions. And <laughs> it's, you know, the truth of the matter is they're never going to stop printing problematic creators omnibus editions. They're just not going to put their name on the binding. They're going to call it Excalibur the Muir Island years instead of calling it the Warren Ellis era and that's just going to be what they do because fiduciary and shareholder and paper we don't even have the Ben Robb issues on Marvel Unlimited but that's the thing they put shit in omnibus edition that makes like oh I'm so glad I have that backup story from Marvel Treasury edition 26 like I think we're going to someday get a Ben Robb Excalibur omnibus and we're all going to be sitting there going this happened it's the same thing with the Psylocke and Archangel Crimson Dawn and it was for of the most boring as fuck issues to actually have like Psylocke and Archangel and ninjas and like how you make that boring if, if you don't know how I'm sure Ben Robb is a very nice man I have he's one of the few male comic creators of the 90s that I've never heard sideways things about and you know he should get a ton of respect just for that but his reading through Ben Robb runs is a chore I appreciate any story that can take such a just jilted and convoluted strange 90s era story take the best parts of it or maybe just the parts of it lift them out and synthesize them with the modern version of this character to make something really beautiful you know exodus is this ancient crusader capital c in the actual christian sense and getting those milestones on his journey more fleshed out as he moves from apocalypse to magneto to hope and sort of finds himself in the process it's really interesting it's really rewarding for a character who we knew basically nothing about for a really 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 long time I'm really really entertained by this version of Exodus who seems to have really found his place in the world I also think it's really funny the way that Kieran Gillen is able to take a lot of the elements that are kind of campy and absurd and like a little bit let's be honest queer and ramp that up in a way that feels like 
he's in on the joke of the fact that when this stuff originally came out in the 90s, it was not meant to be super queer and super funny. But as we all read it and look back on it, it kind of is impossible not to read it that way. So he reads it that way in a way that shows that he's both in on the joke that we've been laughing about for the last decade plus, but also that he is now taking it seriously and writing it a little bit into canon in a way for the character that feels authentic and also doesn't feel so ham-fisted in the writing that people go like, oh, he made Exodus gay and Exodus wasn't gay. It's more like these are subtle strokes and references that if you want to read it that way... Subtle strokes. Subtle strokes. As soon as I said it, I was like, you forget. (laughs) If you want to massage this into... Exodus's origin story you can and it definitely works and Gillen wrote it in a way and the art is done in a way that it feels authentic to you but if you are a publisher who is not prepared to announce that every single character is gay every week that's not what happened here and we just get this Exodus story that has some weight to it but can be a little bit funny and fun with where that weight comes from. Let's all just be remember here, right? Everyone, everyone is bisexual, okay? There are people who don't think they're bisexual, and those are just people who have never watched the 1999 movie The Mummy, right? But everyone <laughs> is bisexual. I think what's what's happening here is less about whether or not we want to read Exodus as, as gay or queer, and more about how Exodus understands himself, which is not in the context of modern sex, like the way we, we think of sexuality in a modern way. You know, he thinks of he thinks of his Black Knight as, as someone with whom he shares a love closer than a brother which is very david and jonathan of the bible you know like a love that was closer than friends closer than brothers dare not speak its name because they didn't have words for it i really like this idea that exodus has this relationship has it framed within this context and we're not being beaten over the head with this this like contemporary labeling system for him because he's not a contemporary and one of the things that i think works so well for that sort of dial in i think you're right gillen is really tapping into something that's like this there, but couldn't really be addressed in so many ways. One of the other reasons I wouldn't make Exodus gay is because I don't think we need more gay genocidal maniacs. But also the other undercurrent that I'm really fascinated by is Gillen's willingness to play with Apocalypse. You know, Gillen inherited Krakoa in a lot of ways. You know, Gillen wasn't one of the architects, publicly at least, at the onset, at the framework. And you know, when a guy like Hickman is like, oh God, I'm gonna go. You know, the Marvel offices have to be like, oh no, we gotta get somebody. And you know, they're like, who can we call? Who does good work, but maybe didn't really get treated fairly by us last time? Uh. And then walks Kieran <laughs> Gillen, and he's just like, "Oh, Roy, I've brought my D and D game and some dice and a jukebox." Uh. And everybody's like, "Well, Kieran's here to save us." And he sits down and he says, "Okay, when I left the X Men, it was what's happening. We're on an island, and so now he just inherits the lack of apocalypse." <laughs> Like, (laughs) he inherited the lack of Apocalypse. But I think it's really funny that you point to Apocalypse of all people in this conversation about Exodus's sexuality, because Apocalypse got woven into such gay stuff. Exactly. Such a huge part of his Krakoan journey. We love Dadpocalypse. He was Richter's sugar daddy. Apparently, kind of feels like he had a similar journey with Exodus a thousand years. Like, it's all great. I mean, there's no, and it's also so loosely woven together that none of it is set in stone. You don't need to do 
anything with it if you don't want to. But it's just really funny that all of these threads were kind of laying around and they got woven this way for this particular issue. Kieran Gillen's one of my favorite writers. I love every issue of Wicked and Divine. I love Die. I loved his Uncanny X-Men run. I loved his journey into mystery. Immortal is probably my favorite book coming out monthly now. No disrespect to the amazing X-Men Red, but I, I love this title. I can easily see he is a guy who does research. He's a guy who does so much research. And I could easily see him looking at his Quiet Council and being like, fuck, all right, I got to do an issue with Exodus. Like, who the I got to do a, a religious guy. Like, I got to do this. Because if you think about it, Exodus is a difficult protagonist for an X-Men book because his voice sounds so much like everything that has been, you know, the antagonist for the X-Men from God Loves Man Kills into Chuck Austin stories and, you know, many, many more. So, you know, this religious fanatic isn't really the easiest mutant protagonist, but I got to imagine that he's looking back like, okay, so what is my, you know, goes into the Marvel offices, I need every issue that gives me the Exodus backstory. And they hand him the one fucking 1996 Black Knight one shot. (laughs) And he opens it up and is like, get the fuck out. He has a psychic battle with Cersei. Like my one, my one piece of backstory and he's fighting an Eternal. Like it fits so perfect for what he's doing as the writer of the Eternals and tying in like Exodus had to be our opening immortal issue for Axe and and the fact that he's able to then you know weave these together and the voice we're gonna get 12 straight issues of 12 completely different and amazing you said nothing is straight you said everything is by (laughs) I need you to take that back 12 12 sexually ambiguous issues of the quiet council thank you (laughs) 12 consecutive sexually ambiguous issues yes that is actually a much better way to describe the first year of immortal x-men 12 consecutive sexually ambiguous issues with 12 unique voices and goddamn, like this has to be the most compelling voice of benedu Paris that we've ever had he he does an amazing job of giving them this unique voice that is honest to everything that's come from the past it is not like a ah forget that fuck that retcon it is honest to everything that happened in the past places him perfectly in the present and makes him actually the hero in an exciting way this motherfucker slayed dragons for us i i just i can't say enough i love every like even the inevitable colossus centric issue that i'm dreading because i feel like it's got to be boring as fuck because he's just a big old sad boy sorry arturo Maybe um, he leaves the council before then. I oh the, yeah, or but but like I, I just gotta believe that like Kieran Gillen's gonna still make it good. Like it's just it's I'm gonna be surprised afterwards. Like fuck, I can't believe I love the Colossus issue because every one of these like we've had Sinister Voice, Hope Voice, Emma Voice, Destiny Voice, and now Exodus Voice, and they've all been completely different and honest and amazing. And it's like God, he's gonna make us he's gonna make us empathize with fucking Xavier at some point in the next seven months and sebastian shaw which i'm not looking forward to that's next issue yeah yeah hopefully sebastian can just die in judgment day and like it's two words he dies and then we can get someone else for the rest of the issue he called cersei a philly a (laughs) philly 
With an F. Speaking of people looking young and Philly, you know, sounding, you know, like Philly is a young horse, right? Yes. If you guys look on digital page eight, there's something so incredible about how young Exodus's face looks. They mostly reserve that much youth on a face for Emma or Kitty or Destiny's Mask. But <laughs> most of the men look a little bit more like cheese gratered and they should. They live hard lives and, you know, they are out in the sun a lot. But there is something really interesting about the way we see Exodus. Exodus as both kind of like over the top, powerful, bigger than life, and also very childlike at times. And I think there's something in Michelle Bandini's really incredible representation of the Quiet Council, these battle sequences, and so much rests on the colors as well, that a, you know, vaguely maroon colored guy who looks like he is at all times trying to cosplay a royal version of Vulcan is Mm -hmm. really, he looks lovable. And that's just nothing I ever expected for Exodus. And that really chalks up to how well Kieran Gillen works with his art teams approachable even i would wolf back and unlock yes (laughs) i think one of the hallmarks of exodus up to this point is that he seems really untouchable he's got that like that ornate golden cathedral shoulder epaulette thing happening he's always floating out of reach he's always kind of come across larger than life he's always speaking in these like grandiose purple speeches um and the krakoan era has really grounded him like the first lot you know besides the quiet council stuff we mostly see him like sitting around fires telling legends to mutant children you know the stories of the mutant nation like he's a person on the ground who people know now and i think that really changes his context and his relationship to the mutant nation and i think gillen built off of all of that that has been established and that we've seen him be a character on the ground by going back and showing us him as kind of like a baby boy you know like this moment where he walks out of the of his tomb with Magneto. I mean, at this point, he's hundreds of years older than Magneto, but Magneto looks like the adult and he looks like this innocent little kid that just got, you know, woken up by his dad and brought into his kingdom. And I think that is a really good place to take him from this point where, you know, if we think of him as this angelic, untouchable figure grounded by Krakoa, let's go back even further and see the ways that he was grounded and very real and very on the earth before and then let's double back on that and show the times like that as a grounded like crusader of a man he saw this vision of the phoenix it has expanded the character in so many directions with just one issue and a few flashbacks it's really impressive and exciting because not only does it give us more of a broad view of this character but the way it feels like it wove into some of the important little moments for judgment day really makes me more excited about Judgment Day. And now I can't stop hearing Exodus say, does daddy's good little zealot boy get murder? <laughs> like, that's all I can imagine now, him just going up to Magneto and being like, I'm a good murder boy. I think you've got to pitch it up a little bit because he's younger, but broadly, yeah, I think you're getting the voice right. Young Exodus is so cute, though. Exodus has been interestingly, like, he was one of the first ones, I think, that really, really fit him in Apocalypse in Hickman's Krakoa when we, you know, we're first mm-hmm. still adjusting to the idea that, like, oh my god, the villains like he fit so well because it's like no 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 no. like he didn't change or compromise anything the mutants came to him and offered Mm -hmm. him everything he'd been dreaming of Mm -hmm. this has always been his project yes they offered him you know paradise and messiahs and they offered him all of it and you know something to protect and defend from mutant kind like it was perfect for him and you know we've seen him treated i would say most like a child of any of the quiet council members the way the other members 
would, you know, say either manipulate or go about him. He's not deceptive or manipulative. He is bold in what he believes in and wears it on his sleeve. And, you know, too many of them try to use that against him. You know, we've seen Emma use it. We've seen Mystique use it. We've seen Sinister try to use it. But he's always still shown with this very almost stern or emotionless face the majority of the time. I love that here, you know, we're seeing more emotion on it. And the idea that, you know, we're kind of recontextualizing only because we're in his POV, that we're getting the emotion that would be kind of behind the mask um, for this issue um, to really kind of humanize him or make him a relatable protagonist without changing who he is. It's really interesting members of the Quiet Council kind of infantilize him. And I think it's because he clings fast to this idea of like, you know, uh, essentially mutant Christianity. It's like Christianity, but through the lens of mutantdom with hope as the as the Messiah, you know, and even hope is like, oh, yeah, your religion. Yeah, that's like the thing you're all about. And I'm not comfortable being called a Messiah. She's a cursy Messiah. And so this issue, we get the lens through which Exodus sees these things. And it's not a matter of naivety. It's not a matter of simplicity. It's just these are the symbols that he grew up with and that make the most amount of sense to him. That's why, you know, he sees the Unimind as a dragon. That's why he sees Hope as his strong phoenix sword and Emma as his strong diamond shield, because he knows these are the ways in which he understands he can incorporate their powers into him. There's something really, he's a Christian crusader. He brought great war to people who didn't want war in in Jerusalem. He followed the church until he found another church and he's kind of just been, you know, taking on new churches and following new leaders until he found the right one. Pope, anti-pope, he found his pope again. It's really interesting seeing that channeled through the lens of this conflict and seeing how he really does reduce the world to the rules that he grew up with. And I think in some ways we all do that. But since so many of the mutants on Krakoa are so contemporary, they don't see it in the same way and they see his way of, of viewing the world as, as regressive and simplistic. Also, the Unimind, I'm so glad you brought it up because my favorite data page in history ever, ever, favorite data page ever is the Unimind internal log data page. It Just is- like psychic engagement plan. Um, first of all, Isidermis is yeah. hysterical. Secondly, there's something, and it's what you're all saying. It's like, you know, they take the silly and this creative team pushes it to beautiful places. It literally says ex-telepathic strike force. <laughs> like that is some Stan Lee levels of fucking naming things. Mm-hmm. And so, Sometimes that can be okay. Shark Girl isn't just cool because she is a shark girl. She's cool because she's named Shark Girl. And that's cool. And psychic engagement plan that it's Emma and Hope and Exodus. And, you know, to dial into what you said for a moment, I think there is something to be said about the way cults use the indoctrination of religion. And I'm not saying that that's any specific church Exodus was ever involved with. But I would say that, you know, if we're talking about the possibility of this character having possibly been co-opted by radical extremism. Lots of people in terrifying situations are co-opted by extremism, and we recognize them as victims of psychological abuse. Now, the things they do in that time are still things they did. And I'm the one who's coming the hardest at Exodus, I think, this episode, because he bugs me in that regard. But by seeing him through your guys' eyes in this discussion, I feel like I'm seeing a child who was taken advantage of who couldn't help that he was so big. Like, and he was turned into a weapon 
when he could have been used to sow fields. And I think Exodus would be just as happy sowing fields if someone could show him how to sow fields the best because he just wants to serve his Messiah the best. Mm -hmm. There really is something pure to his heart, even if his heart has become kind of ugly. And I'm really grateful for this discussion because I don't know that I could have seen that so clearly. He's still kind of a fuckhead, but he's the kind of fuckhead that if I ran into at Starbucks, I'd be like, oh, no, you know what? I'm going to grab two cake pops. I'll give you one. Pick your cake pop. The last, you can't have the last birthday cake. It's mine. You can pick a different cake pop. I don't like you that much. It's kind of like that level of relationship. It's very interesting that he is so engaged with hope right now because, you know, when you talk about how he would have been just as happy to sow fields, you look at the five and the degree to which they are celebrities and lauded and let's say worshipped on Krakoa. It feels like there but for the grace of God goes Exodus as a member of the five whose powers could literally be enhanced by getting that kind of worship. But then the work that he would be doing would not be as a weapon. It would be functional and structural to creating mutant paradise and happiness. And what joy that would bring a character like Exodus if he could be a part of a movement like that rather than a force for violence, even if it is righteous violence in in the case we see here. Well, and don't underestimate the importance of being the myth teller to children, though. I mean, that's a way to get young children to adore you. Which is something I actually, you're 100% right. And what an amazing thing to be able to see, like to have had a moment, even in this issue, when he's fighting the hex, where you see all those kids that have been listening to him say, oh, it's our guy. Yeah, yeah. The thing about Exodus that separates him from all of these other things is that he is pure of heart. And you might not always agree with what he is Mm -hmm. pure of heart about, especially, you know, when he was posed as the villain, but he was never manipulative, coercive. Like when he was leading the Acolytes, it was very different from Fabian Cortez leading the Acolytes. Like he was not, you know, selling something like a cult leader to get people to buy in for his own selfish means. He truly believes this. He is much more a prophet carrying the message. He is much more, you know, that missionary, you know, as as he sees himself. He is simply carrying the message that he believes with all of his heart. And Krakoa has given him the healthy place to do that. It's what made him a perfect storyteller for the children. It's, It's what kind of fits him so well, you know, in these spots when writers like Hickman and and Gillen are able to use him in in ways where we can appreciate him for it. I also, because the Emma stand in me, I love so much that the pure of heart, non-manipulative, like tells it as he sees it, Exodus, sees Emma as the shield because Mm -hmm. she would do anything to protect the children because that's my Emma. So I actually think there's one point in Exodus's written history where he fails in that. And in doing so, the consequences are pretty spectacular. And that's after Magneto's had his mind wiped and Exodus has to lead the Acolytes and he claims to be communicating with Magneto. We don't get any real interiority into that situation but I would love to see a flashback where he's essentially admitting that he wasn't, that he was lost and because he tried to take this position and he was being deceitful that's why Avalon fell. If they did a second year of council stories where you got one per that would be an interesting second issue for Exodus. He was more benevolent than Fabian Cortez, but he was a bad leader. None of the quote-unquote villains of the 90s were written well. Everyone (laughs) was out of character to be villainous. 
But that's such a fun thing to then, like what we've done here, take one of those stories that wasn't well written and have a great writer use it to take the best elements and the ideas that are cool and make them good. I mean, Marvel works so hard. They did such ridiculous gymnastics to try to like unravel or re-explain some of those things like Astra. Yeah. And then oh, just boy. like, we're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just moving on. So the late 30s, early 40s of X-Men Volume 2, the fictiveless X-Men with the fall of Avalon. That's after where we get the bloodlines or whatever, the Avengers. Blood crossover. ties. Yeah. Blood ties. Also, the first fight between Exodus and Cersei. I mean, not technically. Technically, the flashback we saw in this issue was the first fight first between Exodus and Cersei. Fight. So this was, the, so that was, yeah. So the second fight was during Blood Ties. I'm so psyched for this third fight because honestly, it feels like he still hates her and he still wants to fight her in a big way but they shouldn't fight like why would cersei fight exodus like because they don't like because they've got animosity built but up she's at not point. she's not crazy about you know attacking the mutants we just saw that cersei was powerful enough that it took like all of the avengers most heavy hitters just to fucking like daze her for a second so she could shrug them off. Yeah, and, and she was just like, fine, you can capture me, tie me to a chair, it's fine. And if we're a month away from her and Exodus going blow for blow like a heavyweight title fight, what oh, that wait, does wait. for Exodus power level compared to the Avengers is makes me fucking giddy right now. Exodus has a big grudge with Cersei. If I remember, she erased the memory and mind of Exodus's Black Knight and replaced it with Dane. And Dane kind of like took over the body until it died. Reaching her mind out to his with a psionic caress so gentle, so welcoming, Cersei coaxes Eobar Garrington's soul from his body and grants him the eternal peace he fought a lifetime to achieve. She kills Exodus's boyfriend. That's true. And replaces him with her Jumbo boyfriend. Dane. Okay, your girl kills his boy. Not good. It's not good. I would be very mad too. I would hold a 1,000 year grudge as well and want to fight her every time she shows up in my face. I just want the fight to be her constantly doing another outfit reveal that the last outfit was actually a psychic projection and then she fights you a little bit and she's like boom just kidding full on new reveal and she just keeps stepping it up every time one of my few criticisms of this issue of immortal five is that in the flashback where we see cersei like kind of on the ground behind bennett and dane while they're fighting yobara as they're fighting is that she doesn't have the like amazing 80s perm that she had back in the original issue not from yeah the she's 80s, serving from no look here why she had an 80s perm in the 1996 issue i don't know uh, Marvel in the 90s was basically Canada where it was the <laughs> 80s and the 90s and everything was on a time delay. We talked a lot about this in MC2. 1999 for Marvel is basically 1987 for everywhere else. It explains all of Gambit's looks through the 90s too. Yep, that's true. You know, it takes years to get stuff approved. Then I feel we need to point out that Steve Harrington in Stranger Things dresses a lot like Gambit. Yeah, I see it. I love the art. There is not a single complaint I have about the art. I was just really surprised because we've been going so strong with Lucas Wernick to change artists for this particular issue. Not that I don't think we should, not that I don't understand the publication reasons why it happens. This was such an awesome issue. It just for a second, I found myself double checking every panel because I had grown so accustomed to Lucas Wernick's style. But it's also good. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's such solid styles all the way through. We're not getting like replacement filler artists on here. No. Like, they are courting excellence for each issue. And I think that's so necessary because something that Marvel has long struggled with in just a very honest way, not any kind of like, oh, I'm coming for an editor. But it's not the same thing to just say, let me put something else on this book. It 
really stands out. It is very clear that you're just putting someone else on the book. And I understand art delays. I make comics. And when I say, you know, for an independent book, it is make or break when you don't have the finances. When you don't have the cash on hand, it can be really hard. And I'm sure corporations also suffer from that same kind of nonsense. But I feel like there isn't the same amount of respect for all titles. And as a fan, when I can kind of feel that disrespect, it affects my understanding of the book. It makes me think, well, this book won't be important. Look how the creators aren't being given respect. And I don't know if it's fair, but I definitely think one of the things that makes me love Immortal so much is that you cannot avoid the gravitas. It is just there. And I'm just interested in if you guys feel like maybe Immortal gets a little bit more respect than, say, Duggan's X-Men or perhaps Knights of X, which is doing very bold things. Yeah, I, I think this is clearly the marquee title. I think that, you know, it was kind of presumed that Duggan's X-Men would be the carrying the banner for the X-Line post-Inferno. And then I think when we got that cover art, that gorgeous kind of wraparound cover art for Immortal 1 with our big teaser, we kind of started to get the feeling that, you know, that could be the big book. And then once we read Immortal 1, you knew right away this was the main book. And I think everything else gets in line behind Immortal 1. I wouldn't be surprised if some of our backups in terms of shipping and release dates for the X titles are that everything that's supposed to come after this month's Immortal issue gets delayed if we're waiting an extra week or two on art for Immortal because I I think this is the one that dictates the shipping order. This is your prestige title in the line right now, clearly. And they're treating it that way. To me, I feel like, to use a comparison, a lot of times when you talk about the drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race that people like, there's the really popular ones, and then there's the ones that the drag queens themselves think are the best. And to me, like, Immortal X-Men is an X-Men fans book. It is a people that are deeply invested in the X-Men mythos and the culture and the world. This is their book. Duggan's X-Men is a really popular, enjoyable, for everybody X-Men book. It hits big beats. It, you know, especially now where I think for even mainstream popular comics fandom, you do want to get a little bit of the flavor of what's going on throughout X-Men in the flagship title. And Duggan does a really good job of doing that. But it's pretty different and much less cerebral than what we're getting in a book like Immortal. It is a lot less um, consecutive and sexually nebulous. Immortal really is the book that is for all of us who have been doing this for a while and have certain expectations for what the beats that we want to see hit are. Immortal's the book that does it. X-Men is the book that gives you just like spectacle and spotlight that anybody can enjoy for a minute, but maybe isn't going to be a lot of deep cuts for people. Yeah, as far as points of entry, at least, I agree that Dugan's X-Men is is much more accessible for people who don't know that world, don't know the characters, and are looking for more of a like a fun superhero romp that tells its own story within its own pages. And this Immortal is, is much bigger than that. It's connected to the entire history of the X-Men. It would be folly for them to not put some of their best artists on it and keep the art consistently high, even if they're changing artists book to book. It feels like something special. X-Men Red is an A to A plus book. It's, it's exciting. I don't know where it's going next. It's doing great things with characters. It's having amazing moments, but this feels special when I get it each month. I feel like it just, in some ways, it's almost a matter of like what I'm interested in digging into right now in my heart. For a lot of people, the subjects that are being 
dug into in X-Men Red. That's just where they're at. The quality is equal for both books, but for some people, they just want to see this storm moment of like how she is conquering literally the galaxy one step at a time and just being an absolute queen and seeing Magneto deal with post-council life. Like that's just where your heart is at. X-Men Red is the book for you and it is executing a lot of ideas flawlessly. Immortal really is the book that it's just dealing with the things that I'm concerned about more. Like literally this summer as I'm thinking about it, as I'm looking at Krakoa, it has the subjects that are really on my mind and in my heart more than any other book. I'm really interested in what's going on in X-Men Red. Don't get me wrong. This one just has that slight edge of like, this is what I'm thinking about. And two amazing creators are working on both books, producing incredible stories, doing really great character work. I love it all. This just slightly is the one that's a little more on my mind. I also feel we have a habit of losing track of how quick turnover is. And this is such a weird feeling, but comics are going slower again because of the pandemic and the shipping delays and the paper delays and all of the things that are affecting the way our comics are coming out. Now, you know, we all remember events taking longer. When they said that Judgment Day was going to take three months, I was like, who has the time? (laughs) I'm supposed to be weekly. Eat a dick. But like, I get it. We, We are not in a weekly place right now. And the more it's being slowed down, the more I'm really enjoying the way these stories are unfolding, not feeling like I have to get three every month, you know, first, third, and fifth week of the month. It makes it a lot easier to enjoy the line. And that's also kind of being reflected in the speed of the books from whence they came. Because Duggan's X-Men still really feels like an early Krakoa book. It still feels like it's trying to go a mile a minute. Immortal X-Men sort of sees so many things going on around it worth reflecting. And because Immortal X-Men has been a powerful reflection of the things going on in Krakoa around it, not that it's not also doing its own things, but so much of it is beautiful reflection. It makes me feel like Kieran Gillen's pace in this new era is dictating the speed the narrative can move. I really see that right now in this moment, starting in July, going into early August. I'm really curious as we move into late August and September, when we start getting a flood of Judgment Day issues, what that will do to our feelings about the pace of the event as a whole. And if we'll really look at this as a shining moment in really setting things up that went downhill because it was too much or if it really eased us into something that we now love in the middle of September because it's super intense and we're getting a bunch of Judgment Day every week but it, we took a minute to ramp up to that. I'm definitely curious about seeing how this pace continues and then if we do a detransition out of it or if we get an abrupt ending. I have previously expressed my dislike or apprehension of the fact that there's like 37 issues of Judgment Day crossovers and things coming out and that this feels way too big and too much. They're scheduled to come out pretty relentless, but I gotta be honest, everything that we've seen and where Marvel still is on their releases, like, I have to kind of believe that, you know, what may have been planned to come out over eight to ten weeks is gonna wind up coming out over, like, four months. There's too many things continue, like, I keep getting things pushed back and, you know, looking back on, like, when's the last time I get to, you know, ask in my LCS, did we get the last issue of that? Nope, nope, it's just they skipped a month on multiple titles. And it's a shame because I thought that what we got as a result of the pandemic with Empire getting basically every week, getting that story like over six weeks, wham, bam, because they were sitting on it because there were shipping delays and production delays and things that like, I thought that was an amazing way to release the event. I thought that it created more engagement online. I thought that it made 
it more of a real event and not something that we were all just kind of go like I, I thought that it held the excitement and presented the story in a much better way and I would love for that to become the norm you know I, I hate the idea of things being like forever evil which you know by the end just felt like forever where you know oh we're gonna do we're gonna do 12 issues one a month and you know we're gonna make sure that all the titles tie in and then we're gonna have delays and so this is gonna come out over 20 months and hmm. you know by issue six every other writer of all the tie-in issues is like fuck I can't keep waiting for you and just moving on and pretending like you know like this shit's done and it's not important anymore I think you got to get these events out quicker now I'm skeptical about the length of this event but so far everything that's come out has been pretty solidly stellar quality I remain you know eyebrow arched up cautiously optimistic while also being ready to embrace the idea that like this is this is going on a little long and we need to move on Shaw's coming up next I have high hopes that I think we might be getting the one book where like maybe we'll get some sympathy for a character but I think we might see Shaw and Xavier be two of the ones where it's like I'll let you sympathize a little bit because they're human beings but this issue is going to be about a piece of shit and we're not stopping so I was impressed that this one you know turned a character that could have gone either way into a really likable easy to follow wonderful dude I'm really excited to see if we play around with somebody who we sympathize with but still recognize the total issue yeah I think my favorite thing is that each issue has felt like its own book you know they could have kind of wasted the potentiality of this in confusing one shots and instead they are creating something that feels immortal you know new x-men is still somehow new even though it's old and it stood the test of time and i think this has the potentiality to be a great run that we all remember for like evskis Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Exit for Podcast. My name is Nathan, you can find me on Twitter at DazzlerAOA, like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at LostJinkWikoa. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. You can find me over on TikTok, Twitter, when I'm not banned, Instagram, occasionally, you know. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D. DA, and we hope you survive the experience unlike the entirety of the Great Ring on Araco. Yeah, not surviving an experience. Although, talk about surviving an experience, but we'll get to that. What an experience, okay? So, if you weren't reading Act Judgment Day, number one, like, you're gonna open up this book and you're gonna be like, what the fuck's going on? But, just in case you missed Axe number one, they sent Uranus after Araco. Can we say that they wrecked him? This whole Holy, holy crap. Woo! <laughs> this issue started off fast. Like, Didn't it? <laughs> like, info-dense. Info-dense, but fast. But yeah, well-paced. The whole issue well takes done. place single hour and we get it by second by second until like you're eight minutes in and you're like oh my god everybody's dead what are we gonna do for the next 42 minutes right yeah which like oh my gosh like the whole like everybody's dead thing you're like okay well everybody's gonna be dead and then you see like that one panel of like uranus like standing there amongst all the bones and you're like oh everybody's like dead dead yeah, dead. Holy shit, dead. Yeah, it was kind of fun to have a play-by-play of a genocide, you know? It was kind of funny. <laughs> I don't think I would ever say that. <laughs> that's, quite the way, that's quite the way to say that. <laughs> I, I, I think it was shocking. <laughs> it was definitely my jaw dropped. I hit the desk with my jaw. I was like, oh my oh, god. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and it, and it all started with Iska the Coward. Yeah, what the hell? I'm so like, mad about that. 
Yeah, can we talk about Ishka here? Bitch, what? The perfect caveat for Iska is to just say, I'll bet you we'll win, Iska. You know what I mean? Like, just do that every time. Why not? <laughs> I'm sorry. Your mutant power is to quote unquote never lose, even though you did at the end of Ten of Swords because you're the Arakan Swordbearer and the Arakans lost. Anyways, <laughs> like if if her whole fucking power is to never lose, then why why would she go and join Uranus if she could stay with all of the mutants and wipe the floor with the other side? Right. See, that's the thing is like even if her mutant power is to not be on the losing side, there's that's still the, like Roberto. He completely like showed us how to manipulate that ability. So that could have been done here. Well, that's that's still assuming that that bet that he placed with her, she. Didn't didn't say yes to it that's yeah, assuming right. that that her power made it so that magneto won against tarn her being there had no effect on what the fuck magneto was going to do it's not her power that made him win so like she's up her own asshole she has so much hubris like i didn't think there could be somebody who had more hubris than charles xavier or magneto and holy fuck we found her and she is one bitter ass bitch I love it. I love it. I love it so much. I do too. I mean, like, it does make her an amazing villain. I do mm-hmm. think, oh, uh, let's say antagonist, because you know what? Mm. Let's see what happens first. Mm. But mm-hmm. I will say that, like, just from doing that alone and, like, seeing the just sheer destruction, as much as I believe that Magneto is the one who's going to end up dead after this whole thing for, like, you know, a few or three years, maybe, I do think that, like, I wouldn't shed a tear if Iska was the one who died, but I'd be okay with it. Right, right. A lot of the uh, key to Iska's. Uh, betrayal in this issue specifically is given in Aura Serata's prophecy or yeah, interpretation exactly. of yeah. future sight. Like, yeah, you could say like, oh, she could have stayed with them and mopped before with them, but no, she couldn't because right before this entire genocide goes down, Aura Serata does an interpretation of Idil's silence that is extremely prophetic, and she says an empty heart beats hardest, which is a line I'll never ever forget given the last page of this issue. She says an empty hand deals the impossible blow. That's something I'm still puzzling through. I'm not entirely sure what that's in reference to, but the last thing she says is that the stalemate ends with victory's loss, meaning the loss of the seat of victory of Iska. I have a, an idea for that second line, which is uh, the Fisher King, because he's empty in the sense that he doesn't have mutant powers. That's super interesting. There were a couple of guesses I had, like Uranus punching Aura Serata in the eye with a hand out of nowhere, or Cable pulling his giant gun from nowhere. But I think that's much more interesting, because the King is technically an empty hand with his weaponless powers. Yeah. For the Eternals, one of their top laws is basically that they're not supposed to hurt humans. They're only supposed to hunt deviations. And to them, mutants are, you know, like one of the ultimate deviations. Whereas Fisher King is purely human. So he would be the one person who could get... I was curious about that. So is he human or is he just a mutant whose X-Gene never activated? He is he is human because Tarn could have clicked over an X gene. You know Tarn would have fucked with that. But no, he's like, nope, I got nothing. I am just this. I think he's the children of mutants who does not have a power, which uh. to me, that doesn't make him human necessarily. That makes him a mutant who is atavistic and like a human. No, I, I think if you're born without an X gene, which I believe he is born without the X gene. We don't know that yet, though. He's just. Said I, th- that he doesn't- I thought that was addressed between him and Magneto. Like, yeah, like an issue too. 
he just says like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have powers. And Magneto goes, you're human? And Fisher King doesn't like say anything to him. He doesn't confirm. Yeah. Well, because human is a is an earth term. So to him, human may not have the same kind of thing. Like, I think that's fair, yeah. yeah I mean, we'll we don't, we paper, don't yeah. know all of the details, but I that's a really good theory, Wancho. That is a super good theory. It's also so, important to remember that the Eternals can kill humans. They Just yeah. a lot of them choose not to think. Yeah, yeah why would Uranus think some old dude is like a threat? If they see humans as part of the machine, then they will try not kill them. But Eternals interpret their laws differently depending on who they are. Uranus so, doesn't interpret any human as worthy of life. So since, since we are talking about the Fisher King, there's a interesting little tidbit. So like when you read the panel that he appears in, on the dark side of the planet, the Fisher King feels the wind change this time. Night has fallen. So I, I took this as, and I, I've seen a lot of people take this as a two that the Fisher King is part of the secret night council. Yes. For... Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I actually just got to the part where Magneto says, you're human? And Fisher King says, of course not. Humans are from Earth. I was born in the prison. So I yeah. would say I'm leaning really towards uh, what Raven's saying because he's just distinguishing like what he would be on Earth versus what he is on Arako. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would say he's probably, from, by our definition, human, but by Araki definition, he's suffering. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think we can agree on that at least for now until we learn more mm-hmm. agree yes absolutely yeah yeah if the fisher king is on the night council wouldn't that mean he would be some sort of omega right because there's nobody who's not an omega on the great ring of araco that is what we're told over and over um he may have just fought for it and won against an omega with no powers but that does seem unlikely i don't know i'm of the opinion that maybe you have a species that shows traits of an earlier species that they arose from but that doesn't make them necessarily part of that species just makes them a bit of a throwback. My thing about Fisher King in that instance, if he did fight somebody for that thought, is that just because they are Omega doesn't mean they can do anything. It's that they have the potential to. They just haven't necessarily gotten to that point yet okay so, like, yeah, that makes sense can we talk about a panel right next to the fisher king it says t plus 1915 and then it says abigail brand tries to avoid the resurrection protocols and she fails so i wonder how everything that brand's been doing behind the scenes how is that gonna play out in the following issues because we know that charles and the rest of the uh, resurrection team read minds when you, they bring you back so i wonder how that's gonna play out soon i know brand has some sort of countermeasures for that but we don't know if they're actually going to work. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me a lot of when Beast was trying desperately to have uh, Sage kill him rather than like go automatically through resurrection protocols in order to have like his secrets kept out of Xavier's hands. And Brand and Beast have probably talked about the protocol. <laughs> oh, yeah. The hubris of Brand to think that even, even with her machinations that there isn't one of these Omega-level telepaths that isn't somehow like already know her plan. Like, I don't think she's being as slick as she thinks she is like it's obvious that she's planning something and she's trying to fuck it up so one thing that i noticed about brand in this issue is how you know at first she, she does call it a once but then she switches back and just keeps calling it mars she's like mars 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 and like everybody's looking at her like what the fuck is your problem like yeah she's a colonizer she's just a straight up fucking colonizer and it's like loves to remind you that this mm. is a human planet and you're all just living on it fans give abigail brand way too much leeway because she mm-hmm. is hot and i don't disagree she's ex- extremely attractive woman the kind of woman that a lot of people are into who read these books especially because she's a yeah. dominating dominating evil woman that's yeah. a lot of our favorite kind of x-woman but 
Abigail Plant. My God, she is just not as good as we were. Agreed. I love a bad bitch in charge, but like, you know, obviously since the whole sword thing happens and we found out that she's actually like a, a heinous bitch, I actually <laughs> like hate her now, but like in a good way. You know what I mean? Right? Like, I, I like her as a villain. I think it was really an interesting decision to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, I mean, I don't stand her in that way. Thankfully. I think I, it's just because uh, she's like the uh, personification of Gaslight Gay Keep Girl Boss. So. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> Watch <laughs> that is so perfect. Which is why I have always hated. Them. I'm pretty sure I've, I've seen that on X Twitter before, so I won't take credit for it. But uh, oh my god, no, but yeah. yeah, Oh, that yeah, yeah. That's oh shit. That's spot on. In the grand scheme of the X book, she is the one who's being set up as like a grand villain, even over Orcus. And mm-hmm. I think that Beast is going to join. Oh yeah, I could totally see Beast doing that shit. Oh yeah. Oh like, god, Beast, Moira, and Abigail Brand all teamed up. Oh my god. Yeah, I, I could, I could see like a dark team up. Oh. I hate it. I love what it. What an unholy threesome. Right, right. A lot of people say he's becoming Dark Beast, and like I think we have to think about what that means. Because Dark Beast is just Beast. He's just right. Beast who made bad decisions. So, like, yeah, he is becoming Dark Beast. I don't think he's literally becoming the guy from Age of Apocalypse, but like he's making the choices that Dark Beast has made in his life. One thing as I was reading through this that sort of struck me was if Krakoa is part of the machine, so then does that mean Arako maybe eventually like initially was part of the machine, but then Arako being an immense for thousands and thousands of years became not part of the machine yeah or, or did yeah, oh no, that, i think that threw it way off course yeah did, yeah did Krakoa maybe become intertwined with the machine over the years of on earth as like part of its mutation or yeah it's, mm-hmm. there's so many questions relating to that i think it would be to be more like okara like the og Krakoa and Arako before they were split to think of it that way i think it's really interesting to like to think of that history and, and then try to add the machine in. Like, when did the machine end and when does it begin? And we have to think that uh, in past Eternals issues, that this idea of correcting deviation in mutants is actually wrong. And so I think that that should play a part in it going forward. If both like islands are part of the machine, but they also have to be protected by the Eternals, which is like that revelation from from the end of the Eternals book. Yeah, that's a good point. Uranus does not actually attack Arako. He doesn't. Like, Arako, the living mutant. No, the mm-hmm. island that walks like another man. Or <laughs> island that walks like... But did anybody else think Uranus's armies, armories were, like, a super letdown? They were just, like, spider robots and, like, gauntlets that pop out of nothing. Like, this was not the coolest armory I could have imagined. It was literally an armory in the sense that it was, like, other-dimensional weaponry. But, like, compared to the hex that we saw in Judgment Day, it was, like, a little bit of a letdown. I think she is the biggest weapon, and he doesn't really need extra, like... Yeah, this is the biggest weapon that everybody was so afraid that he was going to commit omni-genocide with, and it's just, like, dimensional shifting robots. Yeah, it reminded me of, like, one of one of the panels, I can't remember which one it is, reminded me of, like, the Pokemon Zerkitry, and I was like, I was like, what the fuck <laughs> is that? I don't understand what's happening. I hated Trial of Magneto, I will straight up say that, but at least with the Trial of Magneto slash the Kaiju of Scarlet Witch, like, the Kaijus were, like, fucking threatening like they were massive and nigh indestructible like that was pretty like (laughs) them as a character unto themselves them as a design unto themselves was a good idea and i was kind of expecting something more along that lines like these very eternal shaped looking like kaijus or or horde armies or just you know something that is just beyond daunting the biometallic slime that tries to consume the artists was probably the most horrifying because it's like a very like phalanx liquid gray goo kind of deal 
well, can we talk about how sad this is? Like that the art community fought back for so long. Like we see them still alive and still fighting by the end of the issue. But yeah. like seeing them destroyed, seeing the Valley of the Fallen desecrated, it was a it was a real gut punch, man. Seeing Al Ewing create this nuanced society that you know had really deep characters with really deep points of purpose, and to see him have to destroy these characters that he spent so long building up. Like obviously this had been hard for him to write this issue but like it's just it's so devastating to see all of that culture be destroyed yeah. like that took millennia to exist if he doesn't get to rebuild that society I will honestly treat this like Tulsa yeah I, I agree you can't let us come this far and get this much amazing development and culture that is non-white centered and then just fucking destroy it. That's it feels bullshit. impossible to believe that they would build this up and then in five issues into X-Men Red, throw it all away. It feels it feels like that's not what's happening here. What's interesting to me is the idea that like, are Krakoans going to resurrect all the Arachia against their will? Will this cause a rift between the two cultures? Is this an unpardonable offense to them? Who knows? Let's say it does create that rift. What does that mean? Like, they're just not going to be associated with Krakoa anymore? Like, I don't know. I, that's so... That's a really insane political move, in my opinion. Though, not that I think they think most rationally. But it just feels... It just feels like that would be strange. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think know. it feels strange I, I leaving them all dead. You know, that's... I'm, I'm just saying, like, as, as an out for this situation, it's one that would create dramatic tension. Yeah, that's true. I guess, I I don't know. I, I'm so bugged by the... By the constant mutant genocide again mm-hmm. it's just kind of exhausting i'm thinking steve about what you said if coco ends up resurrecting the iraqi dude it's not gonna work the same as with the Krakoa mutants because those people have been backed up into cerebro and we don't know if the iraqi have been backed up i mean they could they could be in the waiting room because they couldn't back up anything in other worlds, so they wouldn't be the same people. Come even if they came back. If you're in the waiting room, you have to want to come back, right? And yep. it seems unlikely that a lot of Arachii would necessarily want to do that. But also, I something that I think about often is the untrustworthiness of Charles Xavier. I mean, I'm not saying that he couldn't have made a backup of everybody on Araco without their permission or knowledge, because that's absolutely within his power. And yeah. you know he probably has the genetic material for the Arakan to rebuild their body. Cough, cough, Nathan Essex. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. Tarn. Tarn oh. probably has the genetic material. Well, and- but isn't he kind of a... Uh gooey right now uh, gooey can be fixed yeah, I mean, <laughs> how many times have we seen to die right well, <laughs> the thing is, it's like, they would bring him back in case of like dire insane circumstance and this one yeah did you all True. think it was interesting that aura serrata's power does not work on uranus she can make a god exist by looking at him but uranus just says no i don't believe in that like there is no law for me well yeah and like it seems that a lot of her power is very much based on on faith of people so, like, her faith in, in the absolute will of her power, but also people kind of backing up that power around her. And he's like, I just, I don't believe that. And those aren't yeah. my laws. So, <laughs> I'm like... It's an interesting idea because of the fact that Exodus exists. And his mm. power is specifically to draw on what the psychic and uh, almost uh, divine energy of the belief mm-hmm. in, in him. So, I mean, I guess, like, Aura Serata's power makes sense in that aspect, maybe? Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. We don't really understand her power because i don't think legion of x has done that great a job explaining her 
And speaking of Legion of X, I mean, how's that book going to go on now? I think it's issue six is going to focus on Judgment Day. It's probably going to be dedicated to the fight, the, the whole issue. But uh, I wonder what's going to happen next in Legion, or if that's the ending, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I get it, though, because they, they can't, because Legion of X is in the middle of a of a story. You can't really stop it to tell this X. And I think it's story. delayed. Yeah, and it's been delayed. Really? So, like, they could have uh, at know. least given us one meltdown splash panel or something. That's like, how I feel. those beautiful psychedelic splash panels when Sumner and Wolverine were going through Blight World. Like, bring in that artist to do a splash panel of legion versus uranus going at it because oh, i think that would be the Antenna swords? they did yes, a yes. lot like there were a lot like that was like each panel of mm-hmm. the different realities maybe not each panel but but they were a lot of different artists they were going oh, through that, was, that would have been amazing i mean i know that uh delays have happened and all that but uh i'm checking solicits and uh the that fight's gonna happen in october like two months from now what like who's gonna care two months from now what happened right oh and i might not be reading legion of x in two it is yeah it is a whole 30 second fight that they're gonna do an issue of because literally like he goes in t plus 628 and then uranus is back t plus 656 so like like that legion put up a fight but for 30 seconds i gotta talk about the art in this book like you know stefano caselli is the artist frederico blee is a color artist and ariana mayer beast ariana mayer is our letterer like that team works so beautifully together to elevate uh, Al Ewing's words. Like, it felt of such a quality that I felt like I was reading the Eternals in themselves. The art really was of that quality of that 12-issue series that we had. I agree completely. It is Eternals quality. It's also X-Men Red quality. I think we've been getting a lot of really good quality stuff, but it is nice how the X-Men artists are making the transition from Asadra Bitch and the other artists who have worked on the one-shots mesh so well with this where we can we can see this shared universe and it, it all seems to fit i would love to see what asadra bitch would do with say lactuka oh god uh, lactuka showed out in this and i really love that like there's some amazing art there's amazing story i mean the fact that we can quibble over like small details just shows you how much nuance was packed into one book one issue even so it's like yeah <laughs> i read it twice actually because the first mm-hmm. time i read it i was like i was like this felt like a, a long read and i was like i was like i have to go back because i feel like i missed a lot of things and then i did go back and i was like i did a lot of things because there was mm-hmm. just so much that i just didn't catch the first time for whatever reason the timestamps we keep getting like gave everything a sense of urgency so i was like yeah. like just going really fast through pages yeah, the page. and i think that's something that compared to let's say there was another comic book this week that had a similar mechanic with time but i don't think it worked as effectively here as as it was in here where where those captions of time made you want to move forward but then when you reread it you want to like take more time and i think that's something that just like manipulation of time of the audience is something that maybe just comic books can do i think it was really effective here yeah 
they completely rewatch her and it's it lends a sense of urgency to it the first time through and then the second time through you feel the weight of everything yeah it's sad seeing everybody die but i didn't until like going back over it again i didn't really feel the horrible sinking agony of like realizing that this is this is not just a regular run-of-the-mill omni genocide it's also a cultural genocide like he destroys their artists he fries millennia of eyewitness history in a second with his eye beams lost forever you know yeah the memory of the people is is shattered and destroyed yeah just seeing all of this death and destruction from such a vital land i think this more thanks to kieran gillen and now al ewing but uh i mean uranus has had like six appearances total right mm -hmm. and now he's one of the biggest threats in the marvel universe mm -hmm. and i think that speaks to how well they crafted him as a villain and as a character and now we're like a, as an audience scared of him in just a short time like a really really short time well I, i think they did such a wonderful job with that because he is a a world ending type like like sized villain but if you use that kind of villain too often they kind of lose their potency cough galactus cough cough you know because you're like oh, okay they're big they're bad they're definitely a problem but we can defeat them we've done it before we can do it again like there's hope but with uranus we really haven't seen him that much so he's just coming in and laying waste to shit and you're going i don't know if this is permanent holy yeah. shit Yeah, I think in contrast to Galactus, Galactus feels very uh, abstract compared to Uranus. It's very takes a lot of delight in causing you pain, right? And that makes him perhaps not not a better character, but it's more relatable. Like when you see the hero struggle to fight him because he's reveling in, in killing you. And Galactus is just like, he's hungry. Yeah, he's so impassive, whereas yeah. Uranus is taking so much pleasure in personal murder. Yes, it's an art form to... Mm -hmm. He's enjoying each one. Mm -hmm. You can see where, yeah. where Thanos get his uh, his ideas from, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanos is starting to make more sense. This reminds me a lot of that when we talked about Eternals, or when I heard you guys... We were recording where Thanos is uh, like comparing. He's saying, I don't remember who what, who it was a fight with, but he's saying like, let's make poetry or something. In when he was killing all the Lemurians, like it kind of reminded me of that, but more sinister. I completely agree. They have this like weird Epicurean sense of murder. Before we get to the magneto of it all in this issue, I do have to say that like even a lot of a lot of the characters did get some good moments to shine. We saw uh Beto and Wrong Slide, you know, putting their life on the line and to Cora. and Cora to putting their life on the line to help defend the broken land with the artist community. We see Subinar having a nice little fight with Iska trying to get some like doing. <laughs> we get Dick Ryder, you know, helping to try to evacuate the the diplomatic zone yeah although for some reason i don't know why marvel likes to like burn up horses because they in you know the other panel his last one they talk about a, a ship of chameleons who burn <laughs> yeah. yeah a ship of chameleons all yeah. die burning and we were reading that and we were like all right enough like <laughs> stop burning the horses stop burning the like, horses we don't, we don't care about it as much as the office thinks i think yeah but when it said that nova thinks it's a lot to me and then like you know he thinks that a lot right like throwing a little fun at his previous guardians from 
Yeah, I, I would yeah. say Al Ewing knows more than anybody how much Nova thinks it's all up to be way too much. And, you know, <laughs> I would I had hoped that after his therapy in that run that he would stop thinking like this all the time and fighting alone. But I guess that's just like the kind of, I, I hate to call him an edgelord, but I often think Nova is an edgelord because he's the kind of guy who thinks to himself over and over, it's all up to me. I'm the only one who can do this. And then other people are like, no, we can help. And he's like, yep, all up to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really, that's so funny. <laughs> I swear to God, he's like the tuxedo mask of it all. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, like, you didn't do anything. I always love it when the the chameleons get brought up because all I can think of is power pack. Oh, oh god! I mean, this issue that last page could literally be just said that Magneto is just this man is just literally too angry to die, right? Literally too angry to die. A man who's keeping his blood moving with the powers of magnetism. Moving the yeah. iron's blood without a heart. I this is like the hottest Magneto has ever been <laughs> ever. We have seen Magneto do similar things to this before. This power was established way back when. It's one of the reasons he aged so slowly is because he could control and manipulate the iron, the ferrous material within his own blood and others. That's why they always had to keep distance when he was in some sort of a prison and whatnot, because he could control the, the iron in other people's blood. Now, it took a little bit more because it's such a small amount. He's fully charged he is pissed as fuck him doing this i'm just like oh i forgot he had this power but holy fuck <laughs> i think it's wonderful and it's a testament to the art and the writing that they don't actually explain how he's keeping himself alive but it's obvious yeah. like looking at him and understanding who he is you can immediately tell why he's still alive what he's doing physiologically to keep himself still alive and it doesn't detract anything from how incredibly fucking badass it is like this man this man goes up against the Hitler of Hitlers, like an omni-genocidal maniac who wants to wipe out all life in the galaxy. It is so intensely personal for Magneto in this fight. Yeah. And I, I love the I love the emphasis on it. He, he comes across a genocidal maniac who not only wants to wipe out a certain people on the earth, not only wants to do it through conventional means, but wants to wipe out all of mutant kind all at once and everything beyond that. And Magneto says, no, the line will be drawn here, here and no further. It's so incredible. It's, it's very Picard of him against the Borg. It is. <laughs> he draws that line and he stands in it and not even death will stop him. It is so fucking cool. Yeah. So glad my baby my baby I survived, but like, because, you know, like Magneto, they'll, they'll always find a way to bring back Magneto, even if he died, but the way that he is keeping himself alive is fucking badass. And, and it's thematically appropriate. Yeah. He's, had, he's had a hollow heart for his entire adult life, and now it's real. <laughs> and he kind of like flickers like, I have this weird, like, theory that a lot of the, like, especially, like, you know, really powerful Omegas and maybe even really powerful, like, you know, uh, alpha-level mutants that are energy transducers, I think that a lot of them, like, are going to eventually turn into an energy form. Like, I think we've seen Storm, it happened to in some alternate realities, you know, I think Magneto could easily become a being of just, like, pure magnetic might Yeah, at some point. He's like, a magnetic principle yeah. animating a human body. I think that kind of explains why Dazzler kept getting resurrected because she was turning into a being of light and sound. So, like, I, I, I think there's a lot of that. That's my personal thought on it. That could be the next theme that we have coming in that, that is going to be explored is the transcendence from the old you to a more realized form of yourself. Very believable with Magneto because of the fact that he controls one of the fundamental forces. Yeah, yeah. he does. Yeah. And it's also believable because people have been calling him Heartless for years. Really? Because I've just been calling him Zaddy. 
Please magnate daddy in a half, okay? Let's be honest. He's just got another hole now. Once this is all done, him, him and Charles will explore his new hole. <laughs> Listen, Uranus is not the only big new asshole in this issue. Well, they didn't kill Aura Serrata. And just because her eye was damaged, did not, her body wasn't damaged. So the eye is not the everything to Aura Serrata. And we know that it's not all powerful. Uh, Aura Serrata mm-hmm. really must have been taken down a notch by this one. Oh, yeah. Hell Putting yeah. her power work on a, a being lesser than a god and then also getting punched right in the damn eye. Yeah. That, I mean, that tells you kind of the level of power that we're now dealing with, that it is beyond the level of mere gods. It is something so different and so alien in, in, in many ways that we haven't seen before. So yeah, I'm just, oh, I can't wait to yeah, see we, this. We saw a bit of it in the free comic book day issue where Odin was talking with Uranus. And like, we know that if Odin respects you like on a power level, it's because you're immensely powerful. I personally am excited to see where this is going, especially what this aftermath means for Araco. I hate to see what this is going to do to Storm's psyche. You know, this is another time that she has, that people that she has been in charge of have been massacred and she hasn't been around to help. Yeah, I love Storm so much, but she is not going to be beating the allegations of yeah. not being a present leader anytime yeah. soon. And this is this is not going to go well. For, I'm, I'm glad Storm was nowhere near this, personally. Like, yeah. Super happy she escaped. Super happy. That- but she didn't just escape. She she was on other business. Like, it's not like she can just sit there on Araco all day, every day. She is the liaison between so many different people. And she's got a job to do. So it wasn't like, oh, hey, I just felt like taking a golf holiday. Like, no, she's like... I gotta get some other shit done. Let me do this. And, you know. I'm not blaming Storm. I'm just saying, like, this is like the Morlocks writ absolutely larger than ever. Yeah. You know, this is like, they were under her protection. These were people under her care. And she, no matter whether she was at fault, which she's obviously not, and she wasn't for the Morlocks either. No. She's gonna feel that. Yeah, she's gonna gonna feel that. She's gonna feel that that responsibility and the, the pangs of not being there. It is gonna cause some more schisms between her and the rest of the surviving Great Ring. And if they do have to bring back the other members of the Great Ring through Krakoan means to give Arako a stable government or to try to bring back all of this power and knowledge that was lost, like that's going to introduce another set of, you know, differences between them. It may be a good way to to basically release Storm from the need or, or, or the forced position of being leader because everywhere she goes, she's always been put in the, okay, and you're in charge now. Okay, lead. Do the thing. You know, all this responsibility and putting it on our shoulders. Maybe this is the time that she's going to go, I, I fucked up. I fucked up hard. I can't. I can't do this right now. I need to go and I need to go sit with my feelings and deal with this. I don't need to be in charge because I am tired for old girl like just on principle like i love her she is a powerhouse but like she needs to be able to pull away and be herself and do her own thing without so much responsibility on her she's already stepped down from the throne of Araco and is doing a more like people oriented stuff she's on the council sure but like she has responsibilities to all of soul and i cannot storm is not the kind of person who would in the face of a genocide like quit you know i actually really love the idea that this could give her a lot more common ground with emma who also suffers suffers through like severe survivor's guilt Mm. so the only thing that we didn't talk about that i really really wanted to talk more about is iska's cowardness like 
for it. That was a straight up cowardly move. Her her going, nope, gonna switch sides. Swink! It's like, bitch, bitch, you, you apparently don't have as much faith in your powers as you purport to say. Because if you were so sure that you are unbeatable, why the fuck wouldn't you stick by your people? But she didn't. She's like, haha, look what I can do. Yeah, I think to your point, Raven, I mean, you can see the complete like smugness on her face mm-hmm. as she holds Dill's head in her hands. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I understand. Maybe you have to switch sides because your power compels you or whatever. But why do you have to be so smug about it? <laughs> yeah, yes. Sure. Why does she always have to look like she's just done some incredibly cool thing whenever she's done like the worst thing possible? She like yeah. cuts off Adil's head and it's like, ha ha ha, I'm already on it, Magneto. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And Adil is like the least combative of all the people on the ring. So like, yeah, like what the fuck? What the fuck? Coward. But I also love it. It's a gross play. It is a gross play. This guy, like, has proven herself to be totally irredeemable yeah, after what, this. Yeah, what kind of play like, is helping out a genocide? That's not a, yeah, that's not that's a play. Right? Especially a genocide of your own people. Just because you're a bitter bitch that is playing second banana to her amazing fucking older sister, Genesis, who everybody loves. And, oh yeah, that's right, Genesis can not only keep a man, but have kids. And, oh, that's right, Iska's over there sitting there like some bitter ass bitch in a corner. She could choose to fight, to try to fight, and just let herself lose, but she's too much of a coward to put herself in a position where she might actually lose. Why not just not fight? Like, really? Yeah, Yeah, that's a game where the only winning move is not to play. Because if she chooses a side, side, it's just... Yeah, it's either she dies or she sides with a freaking genocidal maniac. So, I mean, what the hell? If she's unbeatable, then... She should be going up against the genocidal maniac. Like I would I would pay good hard cash to see Iska, the unbeaten, a true and honest form of her, a courageous form of her, going up against this genocidal fuckwit who's like, eh, you're just a mutant. I'm just gonna what the fuck was that? How the fuck am I not hitting her? How the shit did she survive? Like I wanna see fear in that motherfucker's eyes and even if she's getting her ass whooped half the time and she's thrown back just as hard half the time like i want to see it down to the end and like maybe nightcrawler grabs her and pops the fuck out because everybody else is dead or everybody else is you know obliterated or whatnot like hey we got to get away for like half a second like boop like that would have that would have been that would have been oh i'm just there (laughs) but i love it i love it so much I love it so much. She's, she's either got no agency at all, or she's a total bitch. That's a, that's a wild pendulum to be in. Does she have the power to, like, if she knows that Uranus is going to come and win, is she forced to join? It's crazy. I can't get a handle on what her motivations are yeah. because she doesn't feel like she has any, you know? Yeah. I would yeah. think she'd be able to run rings around Uranus, but, you know. Right? Hey everybody, Nico here. Now, I've loved covering Shang-Chi. I had, you know, some thoughts on the fact that the book sort of relaunches here and doesn't exactly feel like the Shang-Chi we've been reading for a while, but I really enjoy what the creative team is looking to accomplish. The art is top-notch and the writing remains stellar. We hope you guys enjoy and don't forget, we make this show for you three times a week, every week. That's MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere Fridays. You can check us out over on Twitter and Instagram at X's for Podcast. Don't forget, you guys can find me, Nico, at Nico 
Rico Action on Twitter and Instagram, as well as my original work at KidRiotComics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology featuring Marvel greats like Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, Cena Grace, and more. Until next time, enjoy this last segment, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me trying to figure out how I'm going to fit 10 rings. These are ju- they're humongous. How, I don't care how long your arms are. There's not enough real estate. On Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Razor Fist, who got the shit kicked out of him. Ha <laughs> ha. And that means we are here to discuss Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, number one, by Jean Lun Yang, Marcus Tu, and Eric Arseniega. I am so excited when there's that many credits on a cover. It is not that I specifically have any kind of weird people deserve, like, everybody needs their name up in lights. Like, it's not about an ego thing, but so frequently, colorists get overlooked. And to see Eric Arseniega, a colorist, on this book with his name right on the cover, that really says something about respecting the artistic process and thinking that everybody has value. I feel a little bad that VC's Travis Lanham is left out because you know, people are like, oh, it's just the letters. And I'm like, okay, but you watch a movie without any words. If we're talking about putting you know, color artists on a book and then like maybe thinking about a letterer, Travis Lanham in Shang-Chi has consistently done some of the most incredible work and brought this book to life and the effects of like, especially the fight scenes in a way that I feel is truly basically singular amongst currently published Marvel titles. It really has been one of the delights of the book for me and although we are technically in a new volume, we're continuing a story that picked up from the last Shang-Chi. Travis Lanham worked on both and it really, it is a seamless pickup. His work remains phenomenal. I would love to see his name on especially a Shang-Chi cover because the work has just been stellar. The lettering in this book and the previous books, they made things just that much more fun. Just the way that the words are laid out the sound effects are designed it's it's just such a fun way of interpreting them i think for a book that relies on martial arts more than like a lot of visual powers it becomes important to have really good identifiable sound effects you know ones that are not just the letter not just like whatever the sound effect letter what the word is that makes up the sound effect but also the style of the letters for the sound effect they've all got to be right and it starts there and it gives Shang-Chi a little bit bigger identity because it's going to be a lot of punchy stuff with him. You're not going to see as much power. But then as we accumulate siblings and powers, and you know, you really saw this with Jilan, his sister, who is a mutant who plays the flute. That's a really visual power. You don't actually need to worry so much about the sound effect if you don't want to, but he was already doing the work. And so it got folded into that and it enhanced every aspect of the book. You know, I would love to see stuff like this happening for an X-Men book, you know, seeing Cyclops's powers with really good sound effects makes them even better and I just I see so much great stuff from Travis Lanham in here again I, I just want to really praise that and I am very positive on this book I genuinely have been a huge fan of Shang-Chi's relaunch uh, in the last couple of years you know we are now on legacy number 139 which kind of tells me that this book is going to run 10 issues and then renumber to 150 but that's neither here nor there I do 
feel perhaps that what I was not prepared for was a complete disavowment of everything we've been building for two years to completely reset to a functional movie mirror. And I'm vexed at the decision to go in this direction. That said, spectacular issue. Really enjoyed the work. This was not where I thought it was going. I think we're going to pull those elements back and they're not completely disavowed. I did think it was really odd. Uh, You know, yes, after all the work we did pulling this family together and showing us these awesome siblings who we really fell in love with. I did mention Gilan the Mutant who, you know, there were some great stories with whether or not she was going to go to Krakoa or go with her sibling. There's Esme, Sister Dagger, who is just such a blast. We finally got Sister Hammer, who has been almost an antagonist in the mix. We we did do a lot of work. And so it was odd that we didn't put these characters right on panel when we did so much to get them there and to give them identities. But they're not lost. And they are referenced. And Delilah is a character that we pulled from the start of the Shang-Chi story. So there are elements. I do agree with you. I would have liked to have seen the elements, not just referenced, but really put forward after all the work we did. I get why it couldn't happen, but I also have hope that if this story can retain an audience and pull people in who were MCU fans who recognize what they see in the comic, if we can pull them in and get this book some good readership, we can get those characters back in and see a long-term melding of comic story and more familiar MCU story for this. Yeah, I can agree. I definitely missed the siblings. It didn't have the same energy, character interaction-wise, that the previous series had. But this issue kind of is just a setting the stage type of thing. So it feels like we're going to be seeing some, if not all of them, soon. I'm not too worried about them not being present in this issue. I like the positivity. And you know, I can even hear where I was being kind of like, uh. But you know, like when you get into a a headspace about a, a book or a character and like we were really maybe under the impression that this was going to be a continuation of what we'd already had and it's dramatically different in a lot of ways and the shock is definitely there I mean I do think it's a great issue like I said really beautifully done and what this book is is tremendous it reminds me a lot of The Legend of Shang-Chi by Alyssa Wong it had that kind of vibe but you know we see Razor Fist from the movie seeing Shang-Chi in an ill-defined relationship with an attractive young woman you know in a social setting feels a lot like the movie the Ten Rings functioning as they did in the movie it feels like the movie do you think they were going for a certain thing here? Maybe they're setting things up for a video game. Oh, right. This is going to be a Fortnite tie-in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's obviously way more than just the movie has. The Inner Demons, the Red Dot Collective, AIM, The Hand. Those inclusions are things that really make this a Hallmark Marvel book. And it is a great Marvel book. And like I said, I compared it to a book that we gave great reviews just a few months back. So I am excited for it. The thing that took me the most by surprise, this art, this dramatic almost departure from what we've known Shang-Chi to look like yet so familiar richer than before Marcus Toe did I think like six issues on the title maybe five but here we're really seeing an artist come into their own and a reimagining visually of something they've already been doing so well it's very exciting to see Shang-Chi looks really hot here oh he's too hot it's too much in the best possible way Marcus Toe really was towing 
crossing the line in that first Shang-Chi book. He kept it cool. Shang-Chi looked fantastic, but you know, there we were mid-action in that book, so we really just kind of had to go for that. With a little room to breathe and a reintroduction and some time for some decompressed panels without a lot of dialogue, man, does he get a chance to draw every angle of this man's figure and face and do so in a way that I will fantasize about for years to come. And one of the things that makes him so great is that Shang-Chi has a casualness about him where he clearly fits in in a normal scenario. And, you know, we were just commenting on how beautiful and muscular he is. So it's not like he wouldn't stand out in a crowd. But there's something about when Steve Rogers, who is, you know, like a normal white guy, like is in a crowd. So he's, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, looks very quote unquote average, quote unquote, quote unquote, quote. And he would stick out. Steve always sticks out. He's so awkward in a crowd. You know, he is just kind of adorably bumbling in that way. And I love that for Steve. Shang-Chi is just like a normal dude. Like, I totally buy him mini golfing. And it's a fun way to relax with this character in a way that I feel it's actually really difficult to do with a lot of other characters. But the thing that I'm thinking about is like the characters I associate with this ability to dial into their kind of down moments and their slice of life offbeats. They do tend to be younger characters. They tend to be like the Young Avengers or perhaps, you know, Miles or any of the champions. There's so much to it that I find incredibly believable from Shang-Chi. This might have felt like a waste of page space in other stories, but because part of my understanding of this character is accessibility of his humanity, I felt exploring the mundanity of the moments between extremes really served the character in a really beautiful way. Because I do think that was maybe something that was missing from the first run because there was just so much to do. As I said, doing that work got us a lot of cool stuff. I really love every single member of the Five Weapon Society, every sibling of Shang-Chi. I love them together. And as I mentioned, I do see the disappointment in them not being here right from the get-go. I can see how you might argue that with all of them there, it would be too much and you wouldn't really get to kind of dial things down. At the same time, I might have liked to have seen them as a family having these casual moments rather than being immediately in a story. And, you know, I think the introduction of the Ten Rings as being a central part of this next chapter kind of gives you the out of the other siblings aren't touching those. They're not for them. They're for Shang-Chi. So we can have moments that aren't about the Ten Rings that are just about this family hanging out together. And then the Ten Rings are going to come into play and we're going to see who the star of this book is and we'll get into the action. So I do think it might have been possible to give us a really good, you know, family. This this is their version of the X-Men playing baseball. We could have gotten that moment for Shang-Chi and his siblings and I would have been happy to see it because they're really fun. They're really funny. I think you were really seeing by the end that they do love each other. I would have liked to have gotten us to a place where Takeshi was out of jail. He loves Shang-Chi so much and he loves his little sister and she loves and him. And he loves mini golf. And I, yes. <laughs> I the, the Family mini golf game just absolutely, I really could have killed it. I was saddened by the loss of the richness of dynamic female characters that exist in the earlier runs. I enjoyed Delilah, who is again from the earlier run, not complaining there, not, you know, uh, misreading that. But the only other woman who felt like she got any real time was, you know, Lady Iron Fan. I missed the ladies. Yeah, it definitely missed the dynamic of having some strong female figures. I get 
that it's a Shang-Chi book, but we have so many strong female characters right now. But even without them, it's a fun book and it gets us into a place where we understand how Shang-Chi is really feeling about the current situation with the the Ten Rings themselves. I agree insofar as I think there was room for at least one sibling, preferably a female one. Yeah, I think this I think Sister Hammer being there really could have been a great moment. Everybody else I can see going, but Sister Hammer I could see being by his side right now, given everything that we've seen with them in the past and where things ended up. I think that would have been an interesting moment. She's also a great character because she is not comic book feminine. So you get to kind of beat some expectations of like, well, if we're going to have a girl be in the comic, she's got to be hot and slender and coquettish. Like Sister Hammer is a hammer and I love that about her. For me, the only other source of, and I won't even say disappointment, but it was a moment that I was ready to dive into as soon as the reference started. Nico, I have to thank you for putting me on to so much hand-related content lately. So when the hand shows up in this, the first thing I think is Frank's making moves, Matt and Electra are making moves, the hand is really present right now and really important, there is a lot going on, they're here in this book, I need to know how Shang-Chi fits into a bigger picture that really is revolving around the hand right now. And it's not necessarily my expectation that the book would be doing that, because it's not necessarily what the author wants to do, or it's not the book's responsibility, and the hand is the kind of villain that can be present in a situation like this that's not related to other stuff necessarily, but it did immediately make my ears perk up and make me want to get into that. Not only because I think it would be cool, but because I would like to see Shang-Chi starting to make those moves to be a big player in wider Marvel plots so that more people get to see him as a character. Ultimately, there's not a whole lot of issue here, like in terms of unique plot. This, as Kyle said accurately earlier, this is a setup issue. We're really just seeing what's going on. Shang-Chi is supposed to get rid of the rings, but I guess they accidentally catch him on fire or something. I don't know. They seem to be like driving him to some amount of darkness. And that's a really interesting, you know, direction that I thought they would probably avoid. Something new that we've been doing on this show is asking ourselves if a number one is worth covering monthly to get the most out of the content, or if it's more worth it to cover the material in trade format, where there is a huge bulk of story where the interpolated elements can all be examined at once and the ways in which that might allow the story to breathe a little bit better. I found myself toward the end of the last volume of Shang-Chi feeling perhaps like there really wasn't a whole lot to cover monthly. As a matter of fact, our discussion of Shang-Chi is what led us to deciding to cover some new books in trade. However, the absurd departure from where things were, and absurd not bad, just out of left field levels of it feels like a different book, I feel like this is worth it to cover monthly again because it is such a change. Now, I might change my mind after the first arc, but I think even if it's shorter segments, there's nuance, detail, and finitude that would be lost by not talking about these monthly, but rather talking about it in trade format. For instance, we'd only talk about how hot Shang-Chi is about a third of the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is a very, very good point. So what do you guys think? Do you guys think that this book would benefit from regular coverage or something in more of a trade format? I definitely think that it would probably work better for a monthly coverage of this book. Uh, I feel like we'd probably have to dilute the coverage too much if we had to bundle everything into a single trade coverage. I am firmly on the fence right now. I loved covering the previous book weekly, but I did see how it was getting to a point of diminishing returns in terms of discussion, and I just really enjoyed visiting the book weekly, which is an important thing to consider with this. It's not just like, do we like it? Are we reading it weekly? It's, is it worth discussing? And that was losing steam in the series that we just covered, although I really did love reading it weekly. For this, I am feeling like looking at it, these plots are going to make me want to take a broader view and do this in trade, but I'm still having that feeling of, I want to touch on this weekly, I want to get to it. So the next few weeks as we're reading, if we're seeing really big plot developments and we're seeing the book move from thing to thing, if we start introducing siblings again early on and that becomes a big wrinkle in Shang-Chi mastering the rings, if we're seeing that journey of every week there's a new wrinkle in this problem of the fact that he has to be in control or he has to be in possession of the rings, that's going to really make me want to keep talking about this and covering this. If we do see things like the hand becoming more relevant to Shang-Chi and then Shang-Chi more relevant to hand stories that we're seeing in things like Daredevil and Punisher, I'm really definitely going to want to cover it weekly. If this is kind of a broader, more epic story that is meant to reflect what we got from the MCU and make MCU viewers more comfortable reading comics about something they recognize, I could definitely see that being more something that I would want to get into and trade. I want to cover this one next month, but that already could, with issue two, I could start feeling like, you know, drop it down to trade. That is a very good viewpoint, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I think we can continue to take this month by month, but I know that no matter how we cover it, we are in for the long ride and the long haul, and I'm going to give this first issue a grade of a B plus, if not an A minus. An A minus really rests on how much I loved the art, and the B plus rests on my nearly feeling as though this might as well have been a new writer for the lack of connection to the previous run directly. Again, though, it's just a first issue. So whether it's a B plus or an A minus, I'm really excited to see the further evolution of Shang-Chi and his biceps. I have to agree with the B+. The majority of that is based on the art for me and the lettering. We could have done a little more than a giant brawl against all of Shang-Chi's adversaries at once, but it's gotten me interested in the story to see what's going on with the Ten Rings enough, but it's a setup story. I'm going A- minus because it was a setup story and it did a very good job of that. It could have been an A-plus territory if we'd had things like, you know, a sibling there. If we'd had a sister hammer there, this probably would be an A-plus, really incredible melding of MCU story and comic story to get new readers involved. And please, old readers, we have a good status quo for Shang-Chi that allows us to go in a lot of different directions. The lack of things that we mentioned in our coverage isn't a huge detractor. It's just where this could have been one of the greatest starts to a new series that we've seen in a while. So it's 
not one of the greatest we've seen in a while, but it's a really, really good one. That's my A minus. And I'm really hoping that within a couple issues, we're seeing the type of additions to this story that make me say like, overall, this arc, this series is an A, A plus. 